Welcome to our special Friday Dispatch podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. This podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and podcasts and subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. We'll hear a little later from our sponsor today, the Bradley Foundation. We're joined again today by Tom Jocelyn, Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and host of his own podcast, Generation Jihad. You can subscribe to his newsletter, Vital Interests, at thedispatch.com. Let's dive right in. Tom, we're so excited to have you back to talk about this. Last week, we spoke with Jake Tapper about his book and his movie, which told the story of U.S. forces in Afghanistan in 2009 at Cop Keating. And I guess I want to pick up fast forwarding to where we are now in Afghanistan. And we're seeing the stories about the bounty on U.S. soldiers there. What is happening on the ground in Afghanistan with our forces who are still there? Well, the U.S. military has closed uh, about five bases in Afghanistan um, in the name of this agreement with the Taliban that was signed on February 29th. Um, I don't think, I think the agreement really is a cover for what's going on. The U.S. is withdrawing and sort of they want to just this pretext for uh, justifying the withdrawal, basically saying that the Taliban is now our de facto counterterrorism partner. And Steve and I will probably get into that again. Uh, But the bottom line is the U.S. is getting out. Uh, five bases have been closed. They're withdrawing forces. Um, the mini sort of deployment that President Trump authorized in 2017 has been rolled back. The total number of American soldiers is now less than 9,000 in Afghanistan. And all indications are that the plan is to go to zero. Steve, this is a pet passion of yours of uh, how the U.S. government is handling its withdrawal and its continued presence in Afghanistan. So I want to make sure that you have plenty of time on this pod. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, this is a, I think what we're, what we're seeing and, and what we've seen, how we've seen the administration handle the um, reporting of the Russia bounty story is sort of of a piece with the the broader um, approach to Afghanistan, frankly. Uh, President Trump early in his uh, presidency signaled that the U.S. was going to stay there. We all know that he did this over his own objections against his own instincts. He was persuaded by a number of top advisors to do it because the prospect of Afghanistan turning into an even greater safe haven for terrorists worried President Trump. And he has steadily um, sort of crept back to his initial instincts on this, and his instincts are just to get out. And so what we've seen the administration do is, in effect, um, create a peace process that's not a peace process. It's an exit process. And reach a peace deal that's not a peace deal, it's an exit deal. And so we shouldn't be surprised that when there were these reports of Russia uh, offering and perhaps paying bounties for the killing of U.S. soldiers at the administration's natural uh, reaction was to downplay the story, dismiss it, and, and try to come up with about 30 different ways to explain it away. The problem is the story was true. The intelligence is good. And you have President Trump who tweeted that the story was a hoax, in effect seeming to, to sort of wave away the entire series of claims. 
Um, it's not a hoax. It's true. The CIA has very good intelligence about the bounty program. Um, you had had previous uh, top military leaders in Afghanistan make reference to Russia's, you know, rather open support for the Taliban. Um, you had the administration uh, cite a disagreement uh, among intelligence agencies to justify its lack of action uh, in response to the Russian bounty program. And it's true that the, the Pentagon has said that it couldn't corroborate the individual stream of intelligence that came to the CIA. Um, I think that's right. They didn't have any independent, separate battlefield intelligence on this, at least according to Mark Esper. Uh, that doesn't mean that the CIA's reporting stream wasn't accurate. Uh, I think it was. The NSA had uh, has, I think, separate intelligence suggesting, sort of backing up the central part of the story, which is that the Russians were in fact offering these bounties and potentially paying them, but didn't have separate confirmation. That does not mean that the intelligence was bad, um, which is the way that you had senior Trump administration officials address this. You talk to people who are familiar with the intelligence and they will say the intelligence is good. The intelligence is very good. In initial claims that the Trump administration made about uh, this not being in the, the president's PDB, the president not being made aware of this, um, people not surfacing this, were quickly debunked. It was, in fact, in the, the president's PDB, perhaps more than once. And they sort of quickly turned to a different public relations response to that. After initially saying, yeah, the president didn't really know about this, we didn't brief him because the intelligence wasn't that good, they said, well, the National Security Council took this very seriously and followed the, you know, these steps in order to take it seriously and address the intelligence that we were getting. Well, those two things are, are at the very least in intention, if not outright contradictory. So this has been a mess. And what I guess to summarize what, what still shocks me at this point, it's hard to be surprised by much of anything these days, is that we haven't had... Um, and Tom, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I've been looking. We haven't had the kind of straightforward, unequivocal, unambiguous denunciation of this kind of a program, of the Russian program, from anyone, certainly not from President Trump, and from anybody senior in the administration has, has not said this program is awful. The Russians shouldn't be doing this. Let me back up, though, and ask a more basic question to you, Tom. And again, this goes back to our conversation, perhaps with Jake Tapper and the, the juxtaposition of what that book shows, which is great sacrifice and heroism from our forces that are there against the futility of it, the why are we there? And I get asked that pretty frequently. What is our national interest in our continued presence in Afghanistan? Well, look, I mean, if you go back through my reporting analysis through the years, you're not going to find anybody who had a more skeptical or critical take of the war effort than, than we have in terms of facts. And But from a perspective that's not anti-American, I would say, uh, that you know we're not uh, reflexively opposed to the U.S. military, U.S. military force. Um, but my own view of it, and I know my colleague Bill Rogio at the Long War Journal shares this, is that we have witnessed a massive failure of American leadership here, um, both in the political class and in the military leadership. And that we don't we're not we don't gain any popularity points for saying that uh, there's a lot of people who, who uh, have come after us because of that. But 
I think that's true. Uh, I think that basically the question that you're being asked, Sarah, is, is should be asked of the U.S. military and political leadership, and they can't offer a clear response. They offered a, a sort of a mealy mouth response, I would say. Um, so then why shouldn't we be pulling well, our troops out of Afghanistan? I, you haven't heard me advocate for a continued presence in some time, you know, because I can't justify some some kid from Texas or Nebraska or New York or wherever, some young guy, 18, 19, 19, 20, whatever, you know, being deployed over there and, and putting his life on the line for a mission that Americans don't understand. But now let me let me now and give you the, the other side of the leadership coin. doesn't believe in and at the political leadership. Right. No, it's, in. no, they're, they're not, they don't not only they don't believe in it. They're actually actively opposed to it now under President well, Trump. And two, two consecutive and fr- presidencies. Yeah, President Obama, you know, wanted to withdraw all forces and he got down to less than 10,000 Americans. People forget that by by 2014 to 2016. Um, you know, the, America's had all not just one foot out the door, but has had nine out of 10 toes out the door of Afghanistan for a long time. Uh, that's what people don't realize. But let me just give you the, the, the to finish my answer here. So um, there's the other side of the coin, though, which is what does this mean to the jihadists? So what does this mean to the original 9-11 war, which kicked us all off? And it means a great deal to them. Uh, quite, quite a bit. And the fact of the matter is people say, well, you know, what are we doing there? Well, yeah, look, there's been a lot of wasted resources, a lot of wasted uh, American taxpayer funds. Um, there's been a lot of wasted effort. There's been a, a completely erratic war fighting strategy, if we can even call it a strategy. Um, but this has been, this is, this is one of the main theaters for jihadism and terrorism on the planet. Um, it absolutely played a central role in the events leading up to 9-11 and 9-11. And it's played a central role in events after that. People don't even realize um, you know, we can point, you know, we've documented through the years a string of senior al-Qaeda and now ISIS terrorists who have been killed in Afghanistan, even right up till, uh, including days before the 2016 presidential election, which went unremarked, including a senior al-Qaeda terrorist was plotting against us, um, right up until recent months, uh, even as the U.S. is leaving. Um, there, the, Afghanistan and Pakistan, which is the other sort of looming threat here, um, these, these are, this is an area of the world that's teeming with anti-American terrorists. And the idea that you can pretend that that's not a threat to us or not a threat to American interests, which is what I'm seeing some people doing now, which is what I think the pretext of this Taliban deal is in Doha on February 29th, I think that's a total fiction. Um, you know, you can say, listen, we need to get out. We need to get out now. Okay, I can understand that argument. I can't understand the argument that you're going to say that Taliban is now our counterterrorism partner. That's where I draw the line. That's nonsense. And what we're seeing right now in Afghanistan is the Taliban and al-Qaeda are working to overthrow the Afghan government. Um, when the U.S. leaves, they're going to rebuild part of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, which was toppled in 2001 as part of the response to 9-11. And that Islamic Emirate is going to be the cornerstone for a new al-Qaeda caliphate, which is what they've been saying, which is what they want it to be. Um, And the idea that that's not going to have ramifications for global security, I think, is uh, uh, foolish. So if we, uh, here's what I'm hearing, which is, Yes, it does make sense to get Americans out of Afghanistan at this point because there's no strategy and there's no particular national interest that anyone can articulate to the American public, at least. And two, that the peace deal, though, is trying to make a PR win when, in fact, uh, it is perhaps a zero out or at least potentially harmful. So is the alternative then that you would have proposed pre the February deal just to leave? Well, yeah, I mean, I would just gotten out instead of doing the deal because the deal, uh, we can get into this in a second. This, this, what this does is it basically, what people I don't think understand is that this whole diplomatic route with the Taliban was rooted in Taliban revisionism and apologia, um, which I strenuously object to. If I, I, I say to all Americans, go revisit the 9-11 commission report you can download a PDF of it, just keyword search on Taliban, and you'll see what the truth of what the Taliban is to uh, as an American foe. 
as an American enemy that was deeply in bed with Al-Qaeda prior to 9-11 and remains so to this day. Now, but take the first part of what you said there, uh, Sarah, that there's no national security interest. That I, I, I totally disagree with that. There absolutely is a national security interest I just laid out. I mean, so here's the thing. The, the idea that there's no national security interest actually is contradictory to what the White House under President Trump itself has said. So go back to September of last year where President Trump issues a statement trumpeting the death of Hamza bin Laden. Well, Hamza was the ideological and uh, biological heir of his father, Osama, of course. He's somebody that al-Qaeda was grooming to be a, a, a worldwide sort of terrorist phenomenon and leader. And the White House was very proud of itself for getting him at some point in time and killing him in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region and trumpeted his death. Now, here's the thing. He's not going to be, you're not, the U.S. isn't going to get him without U.S. forces in Afghanistan. There's no way to reach into northern Pakistan to get terrorists. There's no way to get terrorists in Afghanistan with any regularity. I mean, you can launch missiles from abroad and from different sites, but it's very erratic, and you're not, you're not going to have the type of sort of targeted capability that you have with the U.S. military force there. And here's the thing. It's not just Hamza bin Laden. The U.S. also got Asim Umar. That's a name Americans don't know. Well, I know who he is. Asim Omar was a top al-Qaeda figure who was openly threatening America uh, from inside Afghanistan. And they got him in September of last year. And where was he killed? He was killed in the Taliban stronghold in Musakala Helmet. So you, I can go on like this for hours. You know, I'm a nerd. This is what I do, right? You can, you can go on and name all these names that people haven't heard. So there are national security interests here. And, and there's a big national security interest in Pakistan. And that's, that's a big issue for us going forward is we're worried that this Frankenstein monster that Pakistan has helped build is eventually going to turn on the Pakistani state itself in a bigger way and can cause even more problems for national security. And Steve, Russia isn't the only one to be concerned about in this. The China-Russia pact, how does that affect Afghanistan or U.S. interests abroad, I guess, at writ large? Yeah, even before we get to China and Russia, I mean, I think, and Tom had a good newsletter about this um, last week. Uh, you know, it, it's definitely the case that Pakistan and, and Iran have both played a larger role in supporting the Taliban um, than Russia has. And, you know, I don't think that excuses what Russia did or minimizes its importance. To me, the significance of Russia's hand in the bounty uh, plan was the mere offer, whether it actually led to something I think matters from a uh, a strategic military perspective, but matters less for an understanding of the nature of the Russia's approach to the United States and the nature of the enemy that Russia is, seems determined to be, despite President Trump's many overtures and invitations to to join the the G seven. Um, it's definitely the case that both Iran and and Pakistan and Pakistan um, most significantly have been supporting the Taliban and are crucial to the Taliban's continued strength. Um, that's, that's I think, another reason, to, to Tom's point, that this remains in the national security interests of the United States. And I do think it's there are two separate questions here, and I think Tom has sort of separated them or, or, or sussed them out pretty well. One is, do you have an administration that's willing to make a national security case to stay in Afghanistan? and has leaders who are committed to pursuing those national security interests. And again, I would argue that both under President Obama and also now under President Trump, the United States hasn't had that. And I think in the absence of that, I mean, President Obama, I think, gave two speeches, two major speeches about Afghanistan in his eight years in office. I mean, he was just- And they were, contra- and they were contradictory. They Well, and the first one was contradictory 
inside of right. the same speech. But right. they, yeah, they right. contradicted uh, each other. And, and Trump, and Trump, by the way, repeated that process. If you look at what he said in 2017, in the speech you mentioned, August 21st, 2017, he gave a speech. He didn't mean, he didn't mean a word of it, as you and I know. Uh, and then you see what he said just recently at the commencement at West Point, graduation ceremony at West Point. He didn't even, you know, he gave quite, quite the opposite take. So he laid out a case in 2017 for why America needed to stay. He didn't believe a word of it. And ever since then, he's sort of returned back to his rhetoric, which is all about why we just need to get out. Right. And you can't you, you can't point to the intervening years as having achieved our strategic objectives as he laid them out in his first speech. So we know, I mean, sort of the, 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 the gig is up for anybody who's, who believed that that this was some kind of a, a strategic win that we're now headed for the exits. The president tacitly admitted that it is, in fact, not. So right. let me, no, I, let me I, take I, a I, question. Let me, let me say one, what, can I say one thing sure. about that real quick? So not only is it, um, not only is it, did America not achieve those objectives in the 2017 speech, you can see that America has capitulated on some of those objectives in the 2017 speech. So in particular, when it comes to Pakistan. So there was a get tough approach under the Trump administration when it came to Pakistan with hate, withholding military aid and assistance. Uh, you know, we're going to put pressure. We're going to identify Pakistani safe havens. We're going to hold the Pakistani government's uh, feet to the fire in terms of housing these anti-American terrorists who are killing Americans and Afghans on a daily basis or attacking Americans and Afghans on a daily basis. And now you have a complete capitulation of Pakistanis where the State Department is portraying and the U.S. military is portraying Pakistan as a partner for peace uh, and when it's not at all. And so this is this is all disgraceful, right? This is a disgraceful end to this original 9-11 war. And if I can add one more point on the Russian bounty stuff. Um, you know, I had a, a little bit more of a skeptical take on this because, yeah, I don't I, they haven't completed the chain of evidence showing this had an impact in Afghanistan. Uh, but I do agree. In, in other words, they couldn't point to a single attack that they know for sure that the, the Russian bounties led to. Um, and there are all sorts of mitigating factors there. But I would agree with you, Steve, on the broader point that when you're not calling out the, when you're not calling out the Russians on this behavior, that matters. And why does it matter? Well, when you, and this may be a good segue, when you look at what Russia and China are doing and what they're doing together now in concert and independently, they want to wage asymmetric warfare on us in different ways. They want to come at us with different sort of, you know, this different ways of waging shadow wars on American, American interests, because they don't want necessarily at this point an open military confrontation, because as weak as America, as America has become relative to its previous past, uh, recent past, I would say, um, still they, they, they have uh, big risks in trying to take us head on with, uh, against our military hardware. Um, and the thing is that at, at all points in time, what America should be doing is calling out all the asymmetric ways that Russia, uh, China exactly. and their and their allies are coming after us. Exactly. And well, let's let's get into that a little bit. I think it's worth doing. And, and the the there was a development yesterday, not entirely related, but I can tell you that it was it was no doubt noted in Moscow. The Daily Beast had a report. Um, that Jenna Ellis, the Trump campaign, one of the Trump campaign's top lawyers, um, who is a frequent surrogate for the president on on television, uh, Fox News and elsewhere, uh, appeared on RT, formerly Russia Today, which the uh, director of national intelligence and the U.S. intelligence community more broadly has repeatedly uh, pointed to as a propaganda arm for the Russian government. And she went on. Which it clearly is. There's no dispute. No that. question it about it. Nobody, yeah. nobody yeah. saying right. doubts that. All you have to no. do is watch. That's it exactly what it is. Yeah. And the point, you know, the, the DNI's assessment was that they seek to undermine U.S. democracy. So sure. Full stop right there. What in the hell is a top surrogate for a United States president seeking reelection doing on a Russian propaganda network? And two. 
her appearance was given over largely to beating up the U.S. news media as information mm-hmm. purveyors, including, and I would say in some respects, especially uh, Fox News. So you can see that the Trump administration or the Trump campaign anyway, and the person of Jen Ellis was, is not happy enough with Fox News is, I would say, generous coverage of the president and his campaign. It's not quite. They had to go to to RT, a Russian propaganda network, to make their case. What do you make of that development? Should we think anything of it? I mean, I I, let me start with let me load the question a little bit. There's no doubt that Vladimir Putin paid attention to that. How significant it is, I don't know. But whether we intended it as a signal or not, they took it as a signal. Yeah, I mean, I'll just preface this by saying, look, I've been invited on Russia Today a couple of times, and you can do your extensive Google searches, and you'll find that I've not been on a single time, uh, because I won't go on something that's an obvious uh, propaganda outlet for an American adversary. Um, but I think this speaks to the broader point, and one of the things I'm worried about in the foreign affairs section, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to write about this, by the way, because I don't know how to express uh, all my thoughts on this, but um, it's the extent of foreign influence in our information marketplace. It, it's it's quite troubling, you know. Uh, you have you have in, in the world that I've been dealing in the world of jihadism and counterterrorism for many years now. I can point to people who I know are compromised by foreign actors and are given their sort of they're given a, a, a vision of the world that's tainted by foreign money that is anti, that really is is sort of opposed to American interests and, and certainly American interests and values even. Um, and that's a very difficult thing to call out because it's it's so prevalent and so per- pervasive that people don't don't even see it as a problem. That's that's what's ridiculous to me. And you know, one of my quips, one of my jokes is that you know every and when it comes to Washington, I don't live in Washington, but when it comes to Washington and the issues I deal with, it seems like every other country on the planet has representation or an embassy as opposed to the American people. Um, you know that basically all these other interests are represented on a regular basis, and American interests are, are regular are regularly not interested. And that, that leads to the central contradiction of the point you're pointing out here, Steve, which is that you know that for President Trump's most uh, adamant followers and admirers, the thing is, and I've heard this from even family members of my own, that you know, well, he's a patriot. He believes in America first. He's going to protect American American interests. And here you have one of his surrogates going on a media outlet that's openly opposed to America and American interests. Um, so that's not really consistent with the idea that this guy and his administration are told all about protecting America and America's image and, and, and at all points in time. Now, I do think there, you know, there is some, some merit to that case. I do think that Trump overall sort of wants to sort of, uh, protect American interests in his own way. I think there are many problems with the way he views that. Uh, and I don't think he has, he's very well informed on any of that. Um, but there, th- but this does point to a sort of a central problem here going forward, which is what is America domestically? We're now having a big argument over that, and that directly feeds into foreign affairs and how you conduct yourself. And uh, what I would say is there are plenty of foreign actors that are willing to take advantage of those divisions and are willing to play it up. And I, my response to that is, look, we should have a fierce debate inside America. But let's make it a, a, between Americans. We don't need you know Russia or China or Qatar, or Saudi Arabia, or any of these countries interjecting their own nonsense into our, our arguments. Well, here's, just as it relates to the election, and Sarah, I'd be interested in, in your view on this, since you've got, uh, you know, high-level experience working in U.S. presidential elections. What I think makes this particularly notable right now is we can, we can predict with 100% certainty that there are going to be information operations designed to influence the U.S. elections in, in November. It's happening now. There's not any contradiction. I mean, there's not any any question about that. I guess my 
My concern is that you usually have the U.S. intelligence community um, and with with full support of the administration launching huge counter operations to stop this kind of thing. And, you know, setting aside the the questions about Russia collusion in 2016 and, and sort of the extremes of either argument, the kind of MSNBC, you know, Trump was holding hands with Putin argument and the, you know, the the Trump defender argument that the entire thing was just made up. I think the truth is actually somewhere in between. But we know for a fact that that the Trump administration and Trump senior Trump surrogates and advisors welcomed this uh, Russian influence. I mean, whether you're talking about Roger Stone, whether you're talking about Donald Trump Jr. taking the meeting at Trump Tower, whatever you whatever you're talking about, they were open to this help from outside. Um, if like Donald Trump's email was, if 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 the information is what you say it is, I love it. Um, should we be worried that that uh, attitude persists and that the Trump campaign would be willing to accept outside help again, Sarah? I think you look at the outside influence and information campaigns from foreign countries, and what you find is an American intelligence system that is actually very ill-equipped to combat it. Uh, You know, I obviously worked at the Department of Justice, so understand my own bias, but, you know, there were indictments brought against GRU members. There was a lot of um, information in those indictments about what the American intelligence agencies were able to discern they had done. Uh, But that's a very backward-looking focus. In the run-up to 2016, there has been, I think, some understandable criticism of the Obama administration that they knew this was going on and did not do enough in real time to combat it. And part of the answer I think you'd hear from them is, what did you want us to do? You know, it's incredibly hard to sit there in real time uh, on Facebook or Twitter and point to which ones are real accounts or fake accounts without a partnership from Facebook or Twitter. Now, I think going into 2020, you have social media companies understanding just how dangerous this is and what they can do to combat it. And I think they are doing a far better job this time around. You see, you know, headlines of X number of accounts got taken down this week uh, that were seen as foreign influence. Um, I think that just the American public has been informed a lot more in four years. So I'll be interested to see how campaigns deal with this. But looking back at 2016, you know, it was a naive time, I think, in a lot of respects. Someone tells you they have opposition research and you're like, oh, great. And, you know, the Clinton campaign did this as well. Opposition research is nothing new to these campaigns. And when someone says they've got it, you're like, yeah, I'll look at it. Uh, I think now there's a lot more questions being asked. And as far as the Trump campaign, Uh, That was a lot of pain that they went through. So I would imagine that just from a pain avoidance perspective, they would be asking more questions this time around. You know, a surrogate going on RT, to your point about whether that's um, important, I I tend to think not. But I understand why, again, given the last four years uh, and and the pain that that caused the, the Trump now administration and certainly the campaign, 
you'd think they'd want to avoid even that appearance with their surrogates. And that seems not to be the case, but I think you won't fully know that until there's a repeat, if you will. You know, surrogates can book themselves on things all the time without letting the campaign know. Um, If it becomes a pattern, that's where I think your point would be more well taken, Steve. Tom, how much should we, your your newsletter this week um, explores uh, Russia's relationship with China, and uh, you close by suggesting that this might be the most dangerous alliance in the world today. Why do you think it's that dangerous, and what should the United States be doing, if anything, um, to... um, to neutralize the the threat. Well, you know, let me start my answer by saying, you know, one of the things I'm sort of obsessed with is following what the Chinese and Russian foreign ministries produce on a daily basis. And I think it's very interesting. If you just read what they're saying, oftentimes in English, and you can get translations to it when they're not in English, just read what they're actually saying. I think it, it gives away a lot of the game. I mean, you can you can if you just know how to read it critically and understand what they're saying, you can see what they're doing. And one of the things throughout the coronavirus pandemic that sort of stood out was how many times the Chinese were willing to trumpet the fact that she was on the phone with Putin. And basically, the two were patting each other on the back and talking up how great they both are and how uh, both are, they're both doing a great job of handling their domestic affairs, internal affairs, and how they're going to work together on the international uh, through the international system to basically uh, oppose what they call uh, sort of hegemonic threats. And when you get into this, what you realize is, is that First of all, their narrative is deeply anti-American, and it's deeply uh, sort of adversarial to American values and interests. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, I think when you, you can't portray it as anything but that. When they talk about going using the international system or trying to, to ward off hegemonic threats, they have a view of the world in which America and its allies are really the only thing standing in their way of, of achieving their goals. And so they frame, they frame their worldview that way. That's how their narrative. And, you know, one of the... One of the interesting things I got an upcoming newsletter, hopefully sometime in the coming weeks I'll do on this, you know, one of the ways you can show that they're doing this is how they're revising history. So she, for example, um, loves the trumpet, uh, China's supposed alliance with the Soviet Union during World War II. And there was, you know, some cooperation there. Of course there was. Um, But of course, China was much more closely allied with America during World War II, uh, you know, throughout that whole time. But she doesn't want to say a word about that. All he wants to do is trumpet the Soviet interests, even though there were problems immediately after World War II between the two. Um, and that's what's going on between the, both these autocrats. What they're doing is they're redefining or reshaping history to tell a story in which they've been together all along, even though that's not true, against America and its allies. And they're very open about it. And so this is a, this is a big problem because if you look at, you know, for example, the UN, where you have five permanent members on the Security Council, two of them are Russia and China. You know, and they can veto any resolution that comes up. And as I point out in the piece, when resolutions come up that are, are intended to advance American interests that they disagree with, they just veto them. And they push their own agenda at the UN. They push their own agendas at all these international institutions. And right now you have an American administration that's very skeptical of these international institutions. And I, I agree with a lot of skepticism, but I don't think that the Trump administration has a plan for what it wants to do to actually wholeheartedly combat uh, what China and Russia are doing on the international stage. Now, I would say this, you know, I've been very critical of uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and the deal with the Taliban. I don't I don't get it. As I've said, we're not going to go down that road again here. But he, you could see that he's at least trying to combat Chinese in, uh, influence on the international stage, the world stage. 
um, at, at the UN and elsewhere. And he's, he's leading an effort to do that. I'm not sure he has enough support in the US government to really push his agenda or that agenda forward. He's trying to. Um, but it, this is a dire, dire concern as far as I'm, as far as I think any American should be concerned. I mean, this is going forward. Both these actors are looking, they're exploring different ways to, um, combat American interests and roll back and attack America in different ways, asymmetrically, chiefly through asymmetric means. But what they're also doing in, in terms of that plan is they're willing to prop up or support all these rogue, this sort of rogues gallery of actors, whether it be the Iranian regime, whether it be Maduro in Venezuela, whereas Bashar al-Assad, you know, you, you look at a who's who of sort of bad actors around the globe, and you can find them marching through Moscow or Beijing on a regular basis. Um, that should be disturbing to all of us. And, you know, the Russian bounty story with the Taliban, you know, think about the think about the the amazing twist in history here. The Taliban grew out of the effort backed by the U.S. and its allies to fight the Soviets in Afghanistan. The Taliban was not formed until the 1990s, but it grew out of that effort. And some of the key components of the Taliban were actually allied with America against the Soviets, including the Haqqanis. Um, now you have the Taliban, you know, openly embracing Russia. And Russia openly embracing the Taliban in, in through diplomacy this many years later. I mean, this is this goes to show that what explains that other than an animosity for America? You can't define that as purely you know, pursuing some sort of real politic interests in the region. There is a deep-seated anti-Americanism here, and I think that defines what they're doing. Tom, question about this in the backdrop of the pandemic. Uh, obviously, Russia has been incredibly successful in various hacking endeavors. And I mentioned... Uh, the indictments that DOJ brought a couple years ago. Uh, and then China, of course, has been very good at stealing intellectual property. DOJ has also brought plenty of backward-facing indictments on that. Uh, how does the pandemic bring these countries together? But also, there have been headlines about them trying to hack into and take various uh, vaccine efforts around the world. And how will that alliance what will that alliance mean for the vaccine efforts? So the way I look at it is since they're so brazenly and openly in each other's camp when it comes to the current during the coronavirus era, um, and you can see Putin is constantly praising Chinese leadership throughout this. I mean, even as the Russians have been combating the pandemic across their own country. I mean, the, the Russia has been hit hard. It's obviously very tough to get reliable statistics out of Moscow about the extent of this. But um, there's no doubt that Russia's been hit hard like about by this as, as, as have multiple other countries, most other countries around the world. Um, and yet Putin doesn't have anything critical to say about Xi or the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party throughout all this. Now, and you can see simultaneously, Xi is praising Putin's handling of this and saying the two, the two are getting their, their alliances. They said recently in this phone call earlier this month, which I highlighted in my newsletter, their alliance is stronger than ever. The relationship is stronger than ever, they're claiming openly. What does that mean? To me, I think to your point about the hacking and, and to these sort of asymmetric means that they're using, um, I think you should you, when you see that sort of public rhetoric is so in your face and so obvious, you should suspect they're doing all sorts of things behind the scenes together. And that should be your operating assumption. And I don't like to make assumptions when it comes to anything. But in this case, I think it's a pretty safe assumption that they probably are working together on some of the stuff, um, at least some of the stuff. And that should be you, in terms of American investigations. That's where they should be starting from is understanding that these two together can can accomplish a lot more than they could individually, even as as as, pro, as problematic as they are individually. Now, stealing, you know, coronavirus research and and all these things, you know, have you seen Putin object to anything the Chinese have been fingered in, in this regard? No. Have you seen the Chinese object to anything the Russians have been uh, held accountable for doing this regard? No. And so, again, I think that's a tell. So in that context, um, in the past, the United States would be able to 
look to its strong alliances, um, in particular across the West, but also in in Asia, as something of a bulwark against the the rise of China, a more aggressive Russia, certainly an alliance between the two. As you survey um, our relationships with NATO, um, the NATO alliance generally, the European Union, um, South Korea, Japan, and others, what do you see? And is that is our sort of co- our common interests with those countries still able to serve as that bulwark? Jesus, I mean that's a very complicated question. Uh, you know, I, I think there's just a lot embedded there. Those are there. the I mean, only I, kind I ask, Tom. Yeah, I, I mean, I, look, I, I think overall the way I look at this stuff, and I don't want to oversimplify, but I think America has to be in the alliance building business. And America has to be reconfiguring international alliances and even international institutions to sort of combat this. You can't let the Chinese and Russians have their way at the UN Security Council over and over again. It's got to it's got to stop. You know, America, you can do certain things for the UN, sure, but overall, there's just too many. There's a lot of problems, and basically, America has to be bolstering its alliances in the Pacific, has to be bolstering its alliances through NATO and elsewhere to, to, to do this. But the problem is, you know, look, I don't think Trump is entirely wrong about some of his criticisms here, right? I think that the, our partner countries in NATO, our allies in NATO, have um, not ponied up as much as they should have in the past. They've definitely helped America and come to America's defense when it comes to the war in Afghanistan and other things, and we have to recognize that sacrifice. But I, I do think they should be contributing more financially to NATO and the bottom line. They should be taking care of their own defense in some ways. Or at uh, least doing they what they've promised to do, right? They're not right. going to do yeah, that. No, yeah, I think that's right. And, and, you know, and there's sort of a, you know, Trump is, you know, I think I think Ambassador Bolton recently wrote something along the lines of that he thought that, you know, Trump would get out of NATO even if he could, um, you know, and basically was agitating to do so. And that sort of contradicts Trump's other claims where he, he pats himself on the back for getting NATO allies to contribute more to NATO and provide more fi- financial resources to NATO. Well, wait a minute. Either you want to get out and you don't value it at all. Or you want to basically preserve it and just get other people to do more, right? Those are not those are not the same thing, you know. And there there are there is a tension between those two arguments, um, and that's sort of that's why I think this is a complicated question. Unless the which, push on is, money is a pretext to get out, right? I think that's I suspect as well as I think that's very much the case as well, and that's how he views all this stuff. It's all sort of a business transaction. Uh, uh, but it's rooted in sort of his reflexive isolationism, which he does kind of come back to, even though he doesn't, he can't, the world doesn't allow any isolations to be truly isolated, right? The world doesn't allow that. But that's sort of the re- reflexive baseline he kind of wants to come back to. Uh, and that's how he views things. Like, why are we doing any of this? You know, now, listen, NATO needs a lot of reformation. I think there's a lot of problems with NATO. We've been tracking NATO's efforts in Afghanistan, for example, for years. That that ain't pretty. I'm sorry. Yeah, we, we very much, very much, uh, 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 appreciate the sacrifice of NATO soldiers and allied countries who have fought there alongside America and Afghanistan, but the leadership there has not been not been strong. Uh, and there are other areas where you can point to s- similar problems. Um, so the, the question going forward, to my mind, is I think you know what is the alternative going forward here, where you have on the one hand the administration um, recognizes that China and Russia are using international institutions to advance their own interests against us. And on the other hand, you have a president who reflexively just doesn't want to have anything to do with international institutions, you know, uh, whether it be the UN, the WHO, or others. Now, doesn't mean all of his criticisms are wrong, but you got to have an answer, right? You got to you got to start coming up with a program or a strategy for combating what they're doing and advancing our own goals. 
Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor today, the Bradley Foundation. Making sense of current events during this extraordinary time can be trying. Conceived in Liberty, the Bradley Speaker Series is a new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging 15-minute interviews. Their guests focus on the big picture and distill what the latest developments mean to our deeply held commitment to restore, strengthen, and protect the principles and institutions of American exceptionalism. Visit bradleyfdn.org slash liberty to watch their most recent episode featuring Wall Street Journal columnist Kimberly Strassel. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly, so come back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new episode is posted. I was curious what both of your thoughts were on the difference moving forward between a Biden administration and a Trump second term when it comes to these foreign actors, particularly Russia and China, but also perhaps our role in Afghanistan, if you want to touch on that as well. Well, I, you know, let's start with, 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 uh, to connect it to recent reporting. I mean, obviously you have the Washington Post, New York Times and others reporting now on these sabotage efforts inside Iran. And the theory is, and we don't know this for certain, but the theory in some reporting suggests that this is Israel has stepped up its sabotage campaign inside of Iran against the Natanz nuclear facility, missile facilities. They're basically using their own, this, this long-standing asymmetric war, shadow war between Israel and Iran seems to have sort of increased its pace and the level of activity in recent months. Um, the theory is, the political theory is Israel's doing that because they think that they have a more friendly response or backing from the U.S. now under a Trump administration than they would under a Biden administration. That if Trump loses in November, that they're sort of going to be hamstrung in what they can do and that they want to basically press their case now while they see Iran as weakened that they want to basically, uh, you know, basically advance their own agenda right now as long as they can. I think that points to, I think there's some merit to that sort of understanding of the case. Um, I think Biden, you know, would probably want to get back into some sort of um, nuclear accord with Iran, similar to the JCPOA, which uh, uh, President Trump got America out of. He probably would, would sort of go back to sort of this system of, of viewing Iran as something that needs to be sort of mitigated through the international system. And that the U.S. can do that, and that that takes care of our problems. Um, so th- I think there'd be a big difference there when it comes to Iran. Now, Iran, of course, is tied into Russia and China, as I said, my uh, point out in my recent newsletter. That actually, the three countries just recently held joint naval exercise, uh, which was deliberately intended to sort of uh, be a show of force against America's uh, navy and and show that Iran can, has you know basically allies, and that Iran is going to take steps to try and combat sort of any naval efforts by the U.S. Um, you have China is in the middle of negotiating an aggressive um, sort of economic and military aid package or alliance with the Iranians. This is something that's been on the table that predates Trump, by the way, going back to 2016. She originally proposed this, and she now is is pushing this case with the Iranians now in recent weeks, trying to, to move this forward. So the thing is, is that when it comes to Iran and all these other rogue actors, these rogue states, that, that um, there's going to be a divergence of opinion between Biden and, and Trump on, of course, um, and how to handle that, um, you know, it's directly tied into what Washington calls great power competition. And so you have to view it holistically. And now that leads to what Biden's going to do on Russia and China. Politically, Russia is an easier sell for him, I think, uh, on Russia, although there seems to be now a consensus across Democrats and Republicans that China is a threat and needs to be handled. I'm not at all convinced that Biden will, as long if, if that starts to fade, if that sort of political pressure, that sort of sort of common sense approach to the Chinese threat 
starts to fade, I'm not at all convinced he's going to have the incentives to keep to keep the pressure on them. Steve, thoughts, differences? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, you know, in, in a different world, I would hope for um, an approach that's neither the Biden approach nor the Trump approach and would be something closer to a neo-Reaganite uh, approach to these challenges and, and both our strengthening our alliances and, and taking on our adversaries. That is obviously not uh, going to be. Um, it, it, one of the most interesting things about John Bolton's book, in my view, and it's something that just has not been remarked upon at all, is the extent to which Bolton's, the big takeaway from his 400 and whatever it was, 62 pages, or one of the big takeaways was just how fundamentally weak Donald Trump has been on China. Despite the overheated rhetoric, despite the launching of the trade war, despite some of the um, the talk about intellectual property and what have you, on a fundamental level, what the U.S. has done is um, not terribly significant. What the president himself has done in um, sometimes contradicting the 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 uh, strong rhetoric of others in his administration has been really uh, to kowtow to Xi in many important respects. And, and I think the Bolton indictment on, on Trump and China is, uh, is a pretty strong one. Um, as, as it relates to the, to the rest of our um, primary challenges, it's hard to know. I mean, you, you think back to, I mean, you, you look at the Biden, a potential Biden administration, and, and of course, I think back to the ways in which President Obama and Joe Biden not only downplayed the growing threat from Russia, it wasn't just during the 2012 campaign, although they famously did it during the 2012 campaign and President Obama's mocking of Mitt Romney um, in the debate when Romney had said that Russia was our, our greatest um, strategic foe. Um, that did not inspire confidence in um, the way that Joe Biden would approach Russia. Now, I think because so much of our politics is oppositional right now, um, it's likely, I mean, we've certainly seen Democrats um, toughen up their rhetoric as it relates to Russia as they've tried to make this broad indictment of the Trump administration. I think, you know, we could probably expect Biden to continue that and, and take a, a stronger hand with Russia. I don't have confidence that he would be. Um, that he would take a, a, a strong hand on Iran. Um, you know, the, the Iran deal, the JCPOA, was, uh, a, I think, a giveaway and a foolish undertaking. It strengthened one of our primary allies. And if, you know, you want to talk about um, the the Russian bounties on, on the heads of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, look at what Iran had been doing um, to support and directly... Um, back the killing of U.S. soldiers in, in Iraq for years. And, yet and, they, and Iranians also offer bounties to the Taliban as well. There was yeah. all that reporting. You know, they did the same thing, the bounty game. And, and you know, the, the Obama administration didn't, um, not only was the Obama administration not tough on Iran, I think made um, unrealistic approaches to Iran. So I guess that, that's a long, rambling, not terribly coherent way of responding. Um, but I don't, expect that we will see there'll be differences between a Trump presidency and a, and a Biden presidency to be sure. But if, if the, one of the main arguments for the, for Trump on foreign policy was that after he won, he would 
take office and once again see the world and see our threats as they were, not pretend that um, you know enemies were were allies in waiting as the, I think, accurate criticism of the Obama administration was. And instead, what we've seen is just the opposite. You've, you've seen President Trump do, you know, kowtow to, to Xi in China. You've seen him do this bizarre years-long dance um, with Kim Jong-un in, in North Korea. You've seen him challenge uh, alliances, NATO alliances, uh, alliances with our uh, bilateral alliances with our European allies in a way that suggests that he's not seeing the world as it is. He's seeing it as he imagines it to be. And it's not a it's not a realist foreign policy in that kind of old school way. No, let me just well, Tom, I just add one quick thing. No, one quick thing. Um, you know, when it comes to the, the continuity between diplomacy under Obama and and Trump, of course, the Iran deal is the big point of departure between the two. But you, you think about, you know, under under the Obama administration, the idea with Secretary Clinton, Hillary Clinton, was there was going to be this Russia reset. And she had this button, with the reset button that she proposed. And what was the, the underlying premise there was that it was the Bush administration in America and their policies that didn't that sort of stood in the way of resetting relations with the Russians to be more more fruitful and, and productive for the cross the two countries. That was proven wrong. Right. I mean, that, that's not that's not the case. It was the Kremlin's behavior uh, that is the problem, not America's policies. Um, but yet you've seen that same sort of overture from Trump and from what he wants to do, that basically, you know, we should be able to get along. We should be able to, uh, you know, Putin should be on our side in various ways. And, and you know, General Flynn, of course, even thought that Moscow was going to be our counterterrorism partner, uh, which is President Trump's original national security advisor. And of course, that there are many problems with that. Um, but then, you know, when you see you see that sort of what I think is that that form of diplomacy, which is I, what I object to, is rooted in the idea that America needs to make concessions and America needs to basically enter sort of these sort of talks from the perspective that it has to own its own failures and its own problems. And with actors like Putin and, and others on the world stage, when you do that, you're giving away so much right from the get-go. You, your negotiating position is inherently weak. And I got to say, you know, when, you, when you, you laid out that case when it comes to North Korea— you know, the Trump administration tried to offer a whole whole bag of goodies to the Kim regime there and to say, just give up your nuclear program and, you know, you're going to have Trump building condos on the shore for you, you know, uh, basically. And, you know, that got nowhere, right? I mean, you, you can see and you can see now here's another point of continuity is the Taliban deal. This is the great one of the great ironies in all this is that the Taliban deal is rooted in this sort of same what I've blasted as a very servile notion of American diplomacy. The Taliban deal was rooted in that that came from the Obama administration. It came from Secretary Clinton, and her approach basically paved the way for these talks that culminated in this deal. And then you have Secretary Pompeo, who's a big critic of, of Clinton, ends up consummating it, You know, even though it's rooted in the same sort of servile, credulous sort of approach to diplomacy. And so I think there's a big bipartisan problem here. I think we need strong American diplomacy going forward. We absolutely do. You can't, the military can't be called upon to solve these, 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 these problems. Just can't. It has to be a last resort in many cases is military action. But I'm, I'm not convinced at all that America has at this point now, back to my original theme of the American failure of leadership. I think there's been a diplomatic failure of leadership here too. I don't think we even have a, a working idea of what diplomacy should be at this point. Well, Tom, before we let you go, in this era where uh, we're not getting to travel and certainly not internationally right now, what is the one place that you miss traveling to this summer? If you could go anywhere, 
Cost is no barrier. <laughs> where would you be right now in July? Uh, Yankee Stadium is where I'd be watching the Yankees, <laughs> watching the Yankees play. You know, uh, since I was a kid, you know, I'm I'm a New Yorker. I like my New York sports teams. You know, I uh, I, I enjoy the camaraderie and the atmosphere in New York. You know, for all the all the problems that America has, I still and all the problems New York has, which has a lot, I still see New York as one of the great uh, experiments um, for humanity. And uh, as it's it's it breaks my heart to see the violence right now that's peaking in New York and the problems that are there. But you know, you go to Yankee Stadium and all those differences sort of melt away. You know, you're standing next to people from all different places who are all just Yankee fans rooting, and that's sort of that's the vision of America that I sort of hope for. Uh, I sort of see a, a that uh, symbolically in Yankee at Yankee Stadium. Now there are a lot of Yankee haters out there, and believe me, I get it. You should hate the Yankees if you're not from New York. Uh, we do. You absolutely should. We do. You should. You should. You should absolutely hate the Yankees. In fact, I'm suspicious of any Yankee fan who's from like. Texas or something. I'm really suspicious. <laughs> just, as, just as I'm suspicious, by the way, of any Dallas Cowboy fans in the New York, New Jersey area. If you are a Dallas Cowboy mm, fan in New York, New Jersey fair. area, I'm a Giants fan. Don't follow me. I don't have anything to do with you. Um, but yeah, so it's it's basically the same same deal. But you know, to me, uh, you know, that's where I'd be. I'd be enjoying my sports. And I miss sports because that's a great outlet, especially for for somebody like myself who deals with all these dark issues. I love sports and the entertainment of it. Steve, I'm. I think I already know the answer to yours. You'd be in Spain drinking red wine. Yeah, I mean that's a pretty safe bet. I had I've got a I've got a pretty big birthday coming up um, the night before the wow you're turning seventy five nice. that's incredible nice. well played uh, <laughs> it's the night before the election and the plan was to to you know to push past the election spend a couple weeks digesting it figuring it out um, doing some special events that we're going to be doing uh, for the dispatch. And then I was going to do a mountain biking trip um, through Spain, oh. up into northern Spain, um, probably ending in San Sebastian for some really good food. That's not happening. I would very much love to uh, put that back on my agenda. We're, we're going to bump it off. Who knows how long? A year, maybe. Well, uh, I am with Tom here. I love traveling the United States. I hit my 50th state last year. Uh, so well, you've, all 50, all, uh, you've done all 50. I'm jealous. That's on my bucket list. I haven't done that. I've done almost all of them twice, wow. but Hawaii was my last wow. one. I had saved it. Uh, I was very, uh, I had a lot of morning sickness, but I was in Hawaii trying my best to enjoy it. And just the only thing I could eat at that point was pineapple. So that worked out really oh, well. That's the best pineapple on the planet earth. It's incredible. <laughs> my wife and I had our honeymoon there many years ago. And I, I, pro I probably oh. ate about 400 pounds of pineapple because it was just incredible. Yeah. Where'd yeah. you go in Hawaii? Where'd you so, go in Hawaii? Um, now I'm blanking on it. Isn't that embarrassing? The, the place uh, with the awesome beaches husband. and some palm trees. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Maybe exactly. some mountains. Of exactly. So I'll, I'll leave on, on a ra rather negative or pessimistic podcast. I'll give you this upbeat note. One of the things I've been doing there in the pandemic is we always watch these shows on HGTV, which are like beach life or Hawaii life, or whatever. We have these house hunters where they're looking around. And anytime, yes. anytime there's an episode from Hawaii, I just find myself just completely incapacitated watching this daydreaming about moving there. And I think as much as I love <laughs> New York or have loved New York, I figure, what in the hell am I doing living in New York when there's this, this, this is actually one of the 50 states in the country, you know? And I, 
Especially when we can all work from yeah. home. We now get to rethink our exactly. homes. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you listeners, as always, for joining us. Uh, tune in next week, subscribe to this podcast, and maybe most importantly, subscribe to Tom's newsletter, Vital Interest. It is fabulous. And Tom, as I mentioned earlier, has his own podcast, uh, Generation Jihad, which is just fantastic if you want to dive into more of these issues. And we will look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Thank you.